Okay, uh, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ponder Talk Radio. Uh, today I'm joined by VTV Neil Kiernan, who has his own radio show. It's V Radio, and you can check that out at v-radio.org. And thank you for getting that right. I've heard you say it enough times that um, it's burned into my head now from all your shows and from uh, uh, Stormcloud shows that I've been listening to. Um, V hyphen radio, V minus radio dot org. (laughs) V dash radio. (laughs) Yeah. I should just buy the freaking V radio, uh, like just V radio dot org, just so to make sure I don't have to do it anymore. Just buy the thing for it. I'll talk to my web guy. (laughs) <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. I, I, I assumed, I guess, that um, it, it was taken or something that you went with the hyphenated one to begin with. Well, um, I. But yeah, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, no, no. Um, okay, yeah. Anyway, uh, okay. So just like always, I just want to encourage people to go to the Facebook page, Ponder Talk Radio. Like that, uh, if you like the episode, after it's done, there's a recording. It'll be on the YouTube channel. You can post that and can check us out. Also on iTunes, you can subscribe if you search for Ponder Talk Radio on iTunes. Or if you go to the website, pondertalkradio.com, there's a link to the iTunes subscription there. And there's also an RSS feed if uh, that works better for you. If you don't use iTunes or you don't use Apple products, you can use the RSS feed to subscribe. Okay. So, okay, so we can get started. Uh, All right. Usually I have a, a whole bunch of notes that I write up before an episode, but I didn't do that this time, so I'm a little bit um, out of my element, but I think that's okay because this is the first time I've had someone else on who's a radio host. So um, <laughs> y- usually I have to be the one who's always filling the time and talking. Like um, I did the first six episodes with just an old friend of mine from um, high school, and he um, basically he he would have comments and things on what I was saying, but there was there wasn't really a lot of uh, time for me to sit back and let him go at a topic, so I always had to have the next thing to go on to, to talk and talk. Right. But yeah, yeah. No, I'm sure we'll do fine. Anytime you've ever been on V Radio, we've always had good conversations, so. Yeah, yeah, it's been okay. I think, uh, like, most of the times, especially, like, way back, the first few times you had me on, I was, uh, if I remember right, very quiet. I didn't speak up very much. Um, I've been getting better at that. Like, I... I had thought about doing a radio show or a podcast like two years ago or like but back when I started first started making videos, but I just, I was so nervous about it. I didn't think I could carry a show. I could keep talking that much, but I've gotten a lot better with all of that. Um, used to have a lot of social anxiety issues and stuff. So, well, I'm glad um, you got yeah, over that because you have a lot to add. You know, I've always liked, I mean, it's, for me, like, you know, the start of, like, getting to know you was your capitalism epic fail video that I still watch from time to time. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of fun. 
and uh, it does it kind of ties into this episode because we're going to be talking about libertarianism and capitalism and uh, that whole scene because um, basically because recently I've been on a huge Stefan Molyneux kick. I've been listening to pretty much all of his Sunday Sunday shows. He does a, a call-in show every Sunday in addition to like his other podcasts and um, I, I enjoy them because he he kind of does this like pseudo psychologist thing like people call into him with their problems in their life and right. um he always has answers <laughs> and it's just it's really interesting like if you've ever watched the show in treatment on HBO um it's just about a therapist and his each episode is like a therapy session with this guy and one of his uh patients Right, and it's I I don't know. Um, it's <laughs> sounds <laughs> it's like the first time I had Gabor Mate on, he started uh, doctoring me like while we were <laughs> we were talking. Um, right, the, the first right, conversation like, I had with him was great. He was like, "Well, tell me about your childhood." <laughs> I was like, "Okay." <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's exactly like that every time. Like someone will call in and say, "Oh, I'm you know I'm having this problem with someone, and I think I might be dating or this," and he's like, "Okay, well." Well, tell me about your childhood. How how did your parents treat you? <laughs> um, right. I don't know. Like when you hear people getting that emotional and stuff, it's interesting. But uh, that's kind of a side sure. bar to the whole topic. Uh, well, you um, you mentioned that you wanted to talk about capitalism and libertarianism. Um, yeah, basically. Um, what was like uh, because you know you you said that you knew that I had some experience with it. Was there something specific that you had in mind that you wanted me to talk about, or? I guess just because I know that you started off in like the libertarian movement and the Ron Paul movement, like you were just kind of talking about that before we went on the air, and I was curious, I guess. Um, what was the the thing that made you kind of switch or change your mind away from that that paradigm? Well, you know, honestly, there were a couple of things. Um, the first of which is is the way my mom raised me. I spent most of my years as a total independent, like as in politically, ideologically, you know, ideologically, I refused to join sides, um, and it was largely because I could already kind of tell there was some crap going on, you know, with the party system. And I remember George Washington talking about, you know, how he was wary of the party system, that the Constitution wasn't really designed to have one, and that, you know, that he was concerned that people would start thinking about of them, you know, thinking about what was good for their party and not necessarily what was good for their country. And everything that he said as the only independent president in the history of the United States came true, like to the letter. Um, including people being willing to do things like, you know, filibuster to make a president look bad, you know, who happens to be from the opposing party, even if you doing that hurts a bunch of other people, you know, so that was like where I started. And my mom was very big on critical analytical thinking when I was a kid. Like, you know, she was very big on, you know, she told me to question authority. She did tell me temper that, you know, don't just do it for the sake of it. But like one of the most influential stories she told me when I was a kid was about how they had sent a platoon of soldiers to Ground Zero when they tested the first atom bomb, just to see what would happen to them, you know. Right. And, and she wow. said, you know, you need to be willing to ask questions. <laughs> you know, like, hey, I'm not so sure I'm cool with that, you know. And that was like 
a very big moment in my life, you know, and it was it was also something my father despised because he was a 50s father knows best children to be seen and hurt not heard kind of guy. Needless to say, that didn't last long because she got you know when when she realized that's the kind of way she was going to try to raise us was one of the he was going to try to raise us was one of the principal reasons he got divorced. But she got divorced. But anyway, you know, um, it started with uh, a video that I got linked by a friend of mine. And uh, it was Ron Paul courageously tells the truth. That video is still up, but it was it was the one thing that I, I still wholeheartedly agree with him about. Generally, is his attitudes about foreign policy, and it was the the legendary conversation that he well conversation debate that he was having with that idiot Rudy Giuliani. You know, and he's like, they don't attack us because we're free. They attack us because we bombed their country. We've been bombing Iraq for <laughs> 20 years, and you know, he's like, we constantly are intervening in their, you know, you know, in their politics and stuff. And I just kind of sat there with my mouth open, going, did he just say that? You know, like I was so surprised because I always watch the political debates. So mind you, I was much less enlightened about the the bull crap that is our political system at the time, but it still inspired me. And then I started researching that guy. And, you know, especially back then, you know, he was, uh, it was very inspiring to hear a politician telling the truth, even when it hurt, because, oh my God, did the mainstream media ever have a cow? I mean, you know, about that, you know, and then Giuliani tried to twist it to him looking like some kind of conspiracy theorist or whatever. And, um, and then it, 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 that's where I got introduced. First of all, to once I searched around a little bit, I eventually ended up finding Ron Paul Radio and Ron Paul TV, um, which were both like independent radio efforts and, and a Justin TV channel. Um, and that's how I met people like Ray Powell, who you guys might have heard on my show many times. You, if you go to my YouTube channel, he's um, currently actually, I've got videos of me visiting him at his house. You know, that's how like kind of the strong friendship that developed out of my activism is he flew me all the way out to New Mexico, you know, to spend some time with him. So um oh, wow. and cool. uh, but ideologically uh i never was somebody who i guess with a way to put it i was never a dogmatic individual in that i go with something as long as i agree with it and when that changes i change i don't feel any apprehension about changing my mind if i think that there's something better and um as a result you know, I spent a lot of time with libertarians, and I, I even joined their political party, and I became a big-time activist. I ran for Congress as a libertarian in Michigan's 10th district. I was a delegate to the convention um, in, in 2008, and I supported Senator Mike Gravel, who I'm actually the guy who convinced him to go libertarian. Most people don't know about that, but... Um, he and I became friends, and that was actually around the time that Ron Paul decided he was not in any way going to run third party. He was going to stick with the Republicans and just, you know, but you know, and be done. So I, you know, I met Senator Gravel on Blog Talk Radio on someone else's show, and then he and I became buddies. And I went to the convention as one of his delegates. And one of the things that happened was that he taught me. This was one of the things that he he really imparted on me was that first of all. Senator Gravel does not like psychophantic personalities. He does not like people that kiss his butt. He doesn't like people that are just obsessed with him. He's not into that, and he does not surround himself with people like that, even though it could benefit him. And he was one of the people sure. who pointed out to me the cult of 
the, of Ron Paul, which I might want to add is not Ron Paul's fault. It's not something he generates. It's not something he tries to create. But there is a following of him that goes to the point that it's fanatical. And um, so one of the things he told me, he's like, well, first of all, you know, don't take anything anybody tells you for granted. And that includes me. You know, do your own research. Look into this stuff very heavily. And, um, you know, and we spent a lot of time there. And I got to deal with libertarian personalities up close and personal. And um, there's actually, you can find it on YouTube, and it's worth listening to, even if you're not a libertarian, just to understand, like, what the problems with libertarians are. And it came from a guy named Michael Badnerick, who was the, I want to say the 2004 candidate, um, they asked him to come back and do a speech because they were hoping he would galvanize le uh, membership. But instead, he went on a full-on frontal assault with the problems in the party. And one of the things he said was, libertarians agree on 98% of the platform, but they spend 98% of their time arguing about the 2% of the platform that they don't agree on. You know, And then he talked about right, right. how they engage in vicious ad hominem personal attacks if anybody deviates from you know the libertarian like you know ideology just a little bit i mean i'm not going to paraphrase it it's a really good speech to listen to i would suggest people check it out on youtube but everything he said i literally stood up in my computer from my computer chair and gave a standing ovation to my computer monitor <laughs> from the stuff that michael badnerick said because everything he said about the libertarian movement it, it, beyond just the party Every libertarian I talk to, with you know a few exceptions, there's a lot of them that have this problem that they are supposedly the free-thinking society of people who are absolutely psychologically vicious with you if you are in any way different than them. If you don't worship Ludwig von Mises and you don't worship Ayn Rand and you know you know all of their their demagogues and all of that, then they will flip the hell out at you. And the other thing about them is that they take the individuality thing so far, you know, that you, that you can't even get more than a couple of them to work together on anything because they're so terrified of being collectivist. Oh, my God, don't be a collectivist. You know, so that was actually what I learned because I had, when I first got there, I really liked the people I was hanging out with. I was like, man, why did Ron Paul leave this party? These are a bunch of great guys. And I spent three days with them, and I'm like, holy shit. You know, I, I just could not right. believe it. <laughs> You know, just how nasty they were. I mean, the Michigan party, and I still like, I still have friends in the Michigan Libertarian Party, did not have this problem. They were much cooler people. But uh, the, the overall party was just so full of infighting and, and nasty, brutal fighting back and forth. Um, so anyway, this started to open me up and um, to realizing maybe this wasn't for me. And the final straw as far as the Ron Paul thing was when Ron Paul, like basically at the time when he said, all right, I'm not going to run the libertarians uh, nominated this guy named Bob Barr, the, one of the authors of the defense against you know, the, the defense of marriage act. One of the uh, writers, you know, one of the, he, you know, he voted for the Patriot act. He voted for the Iraq war. I mean, this guy was terrible. He was like a neoconservative but he was a you know he was a former congressman so they pushed him really hard and and we nominated that guy you know I don't want to say we cuz I didn't cast a single vote for that son of a bitch but um as a delegate but um and then the constitution party was also kind of making a push at the time and um well I I you know basically eventually due to 
Bob Barr kind of snubbing Ron Paul. Ron Paul made an offhanded comment saying, all right, well, fine, you know, I guess I'll endorse my buddy Chuck Baldwin. And so that Chuck Baldwin was the guy from the Constitution Party. That turned into, you know, the Ron Paul revolution becoming the Chuck Baldwin revolution. And the problem is, is that I don't just do, you know, as Mike Gravel told me, <laughs> I don't just do what Ron Paul says. I went and looked into this Chuck Baldwin guy. And I, I right. checked him out on his website, and I checked out his party's website, and there was all of this nasty, anti-gay stuff on there, you know, uh, you know, anti, you know, gay rights for this, and you know, and uh, oh, and not to mention, they think that the First Amendment allows them to ban profanity, and the First Amendment allow, you know, like just twisted, nasty stuff. And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, this? how does that come out of? Free, free speech, so you can't say these words that arbitrarily are called bad. <laughs> well, right, and it, and what's worse is that it was it was theocracy. They literally on their own freaking, you know, on the, in their platform, it basically they think that the that the United States was formed to be a Christian nation, and you know the Bible therefore is just as relevant as the Constitution. You know, I mean, it's it's crazy stuff, and one oh, of the wow. things. You know, that, you know, I basically, of course, being an independent journalist at the time, I discovered this and started talking about it in the Ron Paul radio chat room. And they had the vice presidential candidate from the Constitution Party on the air at the time. And they're like, well, why don't you call in? We'll, let, we'll have Daryl set you straight. And I'm like, okay. I don't know if that's going to go quite the way you think it is. But, you know, I, I, <laughs> I came on and um, they were not ready for me being absolutely, totally prepared with links and direct quotes. And, you know, starting off the conversation, I said, Mr. Castle, because his name was Daryl Castle, um, mm -hmm. you sat on the committee that developed the Constitution Party platform, right? It's like, well, yeah. I'm like, so that means that you voted in favor of the following statements. And I just started stating all of this theocratic, very much not libertarian stuff about, you know, how gay people shouldn't be allowed to get married and, you know, about gay people should not be allowed to raise kids. And then and I'm like, you, you put you voted in favor of all this stuff. And that was when, oh my God, did the shit hit the fan. Because first of all, I made this guy look really bad and they hung up on me, which, which is not something libertarians normally do because they don't believe in censorship. They hung up on me. And then, oh, no. you know, this huge war went on between me and the network. And eventually I just left. Cause I was like, look, I, you know, they're like, well, you know, Ron Paul endorsed this guy. Are you going to go against Ron Paul? And I'm like, okay, everything that made me decide that I supported Ron Paul, a lot of it, in fact, pretty much most of it, had to do with his opinions on separation of church and state, freedom of religion, and all of that other stuff that's just not in this guy's platform. I cannot go with this guy. And if that, if Ron Paul is a theocrat, which I don't think he is, then yeah, you're right. I, I will totally go against Ron Paul. And there were people who looked at me like I had just committed blasphemy against God, you know, ironic as it right, is, right? you know, and I was like, I can't do this. You know, there's just no way. And I broke that story all over the Ron Paul revolution. I put it everywhere I could. And the people were so mad at me because I was dividing their movement. They were like, I was like, how can you stand aside for this stuff? These people want to, you know, be able to ban profanity with the first amendment and they want to, you know, they, they're crapping all over gays and they're crapping all over people of alternative religions. And, you know, they're like, well, that's not as important as some of our other things. Like, you know, you know, Chuck Baldwin wants to shut down the federal reserve and all this other stuff. I, 
you know, that's great. I'm glad he wants to fix our currency problems. But if that means that I've also got to volunteer to be forced to go to religious school, because that's the other thing. They, they felt that religion and schooling were directly linked, and you absolutely had to have religion in school, you know, in public school. You know, I, I was like, I, well, I know, and that's, I, I couldn't believe what I was being told, you know, and these were people that, um, these were people that uh, if I had said there's going to be this guy and Ron Paul's going to endorse him and he's against gay rights and he's against, you know, uh, separation of church and state and he believes, you know, they would have scoffed like say six months before that, you know, they would have never gone along with that. But all it took was a few words from Ron Paul and then all of a sudden they just threw aside so many of these basic fundamentals. And that's what got me out of the Ron Paul thing, although I still think I agree with a lot of the things he does. I still have a Ron Paul button that I wear when I go to Occupy events along with my Kucinich button and my Gravel button and my, you know, um, my Zeitgeist movement button. Um, but right, anyway, right. you know, but ideologically, the, the final change, I was already kind of in a period of transition in questioning my, my views when I watched Zeitgeist Addendum. And... Right. That's when we got introduced to I got introduced to Jacques Fresco, I got introduced to, you know, the, the, the Venus project and all of these concepts of the resource based economy. And that's when I was like, This makes perfect sense and it answers a lot of questions that I had about the free market concepts and and certain reservations that I had about those ideas, you know, and it it did not take much for me to make that transformation, mostly and I realized this in the aftermath because I've always been a free thinker and I don't respond to social pressures at all. And there were a lot of my friends who really freaking flipped out on me when I wasn't a free market libertarian anymore. Like they felt betrayed. I felt like, like I had left the Westboro Baptist church or something, you know, they, they, they shunned, they got, they got angry, you know, and, um, it still didn't phase me. I'm like, well, this is who I am. If you don't like it, get lost. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's that's good. Um, there's a couple things in there that uh, I thought were really interesting. When you said that your mom um, taught you to be a critical thinker, or you know, like was that 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 was the way that she wanted to raise you. And like, I just did an episode on um, education a few shows ago, and I was talking about how kids today are not taught just basic logic skills and basic um, rhetoric skills and logical fallacies. And I know like, I know that you are someone who often will go out and just point out logical fallacies and when people are arguing and if they're using ad hominems or if they're using appeals to authority and things like that. Because a lot of people just don't understand those things when they see them. They don't understand that that's not a good argument. And so they are they're, they're mentally crippled in a way because they don't they're unable to recognize bad arguments and problems in logic because they've never learned to be a critical thinker their parents didn't teach it to them and the schools don't teach it to them so they just grow up without that skill without being able to recognize those things when they see them and it's really i, I like that's that's um it's just so good for the people who are in power for the people who are 
Um, I, again, I'm not saying Ron Paul would do that on purpose, but for someone who wants to run a group like that and who would like to be able to just um, appoint someone to be the new uh, person at the head of that group or the, the, the person that should be supported without all the people in the group doing what you did and questioning who that person is or what, what their stances are and actually going and taking a look at it. They're just not um, lo looking at things from a critical angle. And it, that I, you have to be taught that as a kid. So it's not right. something that you, you just get trained into. I just thought that was really interesting that that's something that you remember and point to specifically. Um, yeah, and I just I, I thought it would be interesting to ask you that because I – I got started in um, activism and in just kind of looking into all this stuff by the, through the Zeitgeist movies and through the Zeitgeist movement. I saw Addendum just it was just a few years after I graduated high school, three years I think out of high school. So I didn't really have a lot of time to have other opinions before that and when I saw that I was just like oh wow that makes so much sense this, this I want to support this and um, even like when I made capitalism epic fail like I, I it's a good video don't get me wrong like I mean it, it got me any of the the popularity or the, any of the people who follow what I do is in large part from that video and from one or two others that I did. But when I look back at it now, like I, I was just basically repeating arguments that I had heard Peter say, or that were in the zeitgeist movies or that were in the zeitgeist movement. They weren't things that I had really formed myself and not that that's a bad thing, but they were just the first ideas I'd encountered and they were the, um, that that was completely where my headspace was at at that time. And when I released that video, I was just met with this onslaught of people on the YouTube comments or sending me messages or this and that who were wanted to argue with me and who wanted to <laughs> <laughs> present Sorry, the free market ahead. side of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it, <laughs> you call a video capitalism epic fail. Like, people are very emotionally attached to capitalism mm -hmm. and uh, or just as they would be like any system like if I made a video I, I made the zeitgeist movement exposed video and I get just as many people on that one who don't understand that it's a joke who are um, are wanting to argue with me about zeitgeist being the right way to go um, <laughs> but um, like kind of through all my conversations with those people I started to realize there were things about their arguments that I didn't understand and that I really didn't have the proper answer for, or at least I just, I, I, I basically decided that if I, if I was going to make this my thing and if I wanted to be able to argue against capitalism or for capitalism or whatever, I needed to understand it very well. I wanted to be able to argue for it as well as I could argue against it so that I knew that I understood their arguments as well as they did, you know? And um, so I started doing some things like, like I read Atlas Shrugged. I was just like, this is what, you know, you, you, you hear 70% or it's just a random number, but you hear so many of these people throw that out as the turning point for them. Like that, that's what got them to start thinking about, 
um, these kinds of issues and what's wrong with the world and how do we fix it. And I was almost like, I, I was like, okay, well, I, I want to see like what this book says. And I did really, really enjoy the book. I mean, I think that there is, there, there is a lot of value in there. A lot of, um, it's, it, I can see how you would read that book or even when I read that book, you feel like empowered. You want to go and be one of these heroes that she has. You want to get shit done and you want to be a, be your own person and um, forge your path and do what you think is right and not care about anyone else. And just like, you, you know, it's, it's very self-empowering. It's a very self-empowered um, philosophy. And I, I kind of thought, I was like, well, if I had read this book before I watched Zeitgeist Addendum, I could easily have seen myself going to that side of it, you know? So I was like, okay, I have to look into this and actually figure out what I think is true, what I think who has the better argument. And so that's what got me into the whole Steph Molyneux kick. Plus, I, I like a lot of what he says about parenting, and I like a lot of what he says about most topics that aren't directly related to free market um, stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I feel like my, uh, my, my whole worldview has kind of just broadened and I've been, my, my, where I've been looking for information and all that has been, um, Less of a narrow focus than it used to be, I guess, is uh, all I'm trying sure. to say. For sure. And yeah. honestly, you know, that's actually kind of what at the core of what we're supposed to be doing anyway. You know, um, Peter does that in his own life. You know, Jock suggests that people do that. You know, um, and I think that uh, basically um, when it comes to people like Stefan, okay, um, and I, I do, you know, razz on him sometimes, obviously, because of his financial beliefs. But like I said to you, you know, off the air, and I've said this on my own show, you know, if if there was a conservative, you know, person, I'd much rather they were listening to Stefan Molyneux than Bill O'Reilly or Glenn Beck or, you know, one of those types. And I think the thing about Stefan, you know, he's a good speaker, and I do agree with a lot of the things you know, that, that he says sometimes. And it's actually kind of ironic that um, because of Zeitgeist moving forward, you know, the film that he attacks on his own show is the reason he ended up looking into uh, Gabor Mate and ended up having him on his own show. You know, so oh, okay. Okay. so Peter ended up influencing him <laughs> regardless. Um, I think that basically... You know, and I tell people this because I still, you know, link Stefan videos sometimes. Um, I generally, and I got to give the guy credit for at least, you know, when you debate with him, he's not going to really bully you necessarily. He's not going to insult you. He's not going to do any of that. The only thing that he did that annoyed me, and it made it even worse when I had a 102-degree fever and a pounding <laughs> sinus headache, is he, he'll repeat something um, over and over and over again, and one of the things that came up about that particular debate is like, you know, he kept asking me for the algorithm on how the, you know, the Venus project was going to work or whatever. And, um, 
the thing that I, I told him was like, okay, you're basically telling me that the reason this can't work is because Ludwig von Mises said so. But von Mises, I'm not ignorant to the free market ideology. Somebody does not get nominated to run for Congress as a libertarian unless they understand Mises. And Mises admitted that he made up all of his economic ideas, that they're not based on a collection of any data, they're not testable, they're not, you know, it's not a scientific school. And more to the point, um, even mainstream economists do not embrace the Austrian school. In fact, they think of it as fringe, like it's silly. And right, so it right. doesn't automatically mean that that's the truth, but he was quoting it as if it was empirical, like it was like it was a, a, you know, a successful appeal to authority to say, well, Ludwig von Mises right. said, <laughs> you know. Like that you, like that you have to um, explain the argument under the, the assumption that what he's saying is true and that you right. have to figure out a way around it rather than presenting the other side. Right. That's actually, that's exactly <laughs> it. And it's not uncommon to arguing with free market capitalists in particular it's very common, actually. They get extremely dogmatic. I remember I argued with Lady Addis. I was just talking to Brandy Hume the other day because you know she was you know, wanted to talk to me about some stuff, and we talked about Lady Addis again. I don't know if you're familiar with Lady Addis, but they're a YouTube personality. Yep, yep. And I got into a debate with him uh, in in private messages, and he the the argument we were having was about uh, like he said, well. As productivity increases, wages increase. I'm like, what exactly guarantees that? He's like, well, uh, hundreds of years of historical precedent. I said, okay, so what you're telling me is that the production quality of the workers will raise their salaries just on its own. He's like, well, no, but that's that's what will happen economically. I'm like, okay, the problem with what you're saying is that that is obviously not what's going on now. That's what outsourcing is all about. You know, they pick up and they leave yeah. countries where they are paying a, you know, a, a minimum wage and all that and they go to places where they don't have to do that. You know, and then he's like, you know, and he's like, "Well, you just need to study your history." I'm like, "I'm talking about the present." You know, I, I don't really even agree with your historical assessment. I don't think that there's like, but he literally acted like it was a law of physics. Like it is a law of physics that yeah, your production right, right. will increase your wages. It, that's when you uh, go ahead. So, sorry, just like that. That that's like every every, every sort of like okay. The, the Steph Steph Molyneux has this video called Five Free Market um, Myths Debunked," where there'll be something like, "Okay, there'll never be a monopoly in a free market because as soon as you have a monopoly, one of them will underbid the other ones, and then people will fling to that company. The other ones will fall apart. You know what I mean? Right. It, they treat all of those things as if they will inevitably happen every time because of these, you know, laws of economics that are written in stone. That as soon as um, production goes up, wages go up. Or if you have minimum wages, then um, it's going to raise prices for everyone. Just, just all these things that are kind of there, there's a lot more factors involved, and they make them sound axiomatic, as if you can't ever they can't ever be violated. But then you just point to, like you said, what's happening now, or in any specific situation, you can say, well, it's not what's happening. So maybe there's more to it than that. 
Right, and that's actually what uh, this is actually kind of ironic. Um, I should have taken a screenshot of this because it happened on Skype, but he made a video in response to Peter Joseph. One of the videos he made was like debunking certain myths, like you were saying, and one of them was he made was about planned obsolescence. He said that planned obsolescence is a myth; it's not real. You know, nobody would actually buy these products. Blah 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 blah. And so um, I still talk to him on Skype. I mean, uh, like we're not like bosom buddies, but we still chat regularly. And I'll give him links, or he'll give me links, and we'll discuss them. And I said to him, I'm like, so you still think plant obsolescence is a fallacy? He's like, yes. And so I had him watch the light bulb conspiracy. <laughs> and um, right, right. he watched the whole thing. And um, so I said, so what do you think now? You know, he's like, well, sure. I mean, who makes products to last 100 years? <laughs> It's like <laughs> what? You know, he's like well, he, so he kind of the whole thing. He he admitted that he admitted that plan obsolescence was not a fallacy in the course of that conversation, but he made it he he didn't outright defend it necessarily, but he acted like it wasn't a big deal. The thing is is that that's the opposite of what he says to his own listeners. It's the opposite of what he said in his own videos. You know, he doesn't come out and say, "Okay, well yeah, plan obsolescence is real." He didn't do any kind of retraction, but he didn't. He was definitely awkward about it when I showed him that film because you cannot watch, you know, Pyramid of Ways, the light bulb conspiracy, and not realize yes, this is freaking real. You know. Um, yeah, it's a real. Like, I think I think he did a video on that more recently, and I remember him mentioning both light bulbs and uh, the thing in that movie where they show the printer that has a chip in it that yes. is designed yeah. to just make it shut down at a certain point. And um, he went on this a whole long thing about how planned obsolescence wouldn't happen because competition, people would choose the better products, and those are the companies that would survive. But then at the end he said, well, yeah, but, you know, and today, I mean, like, I, I saw this thing once where there was uh, this printer that was designed to break down, but that wouldn't happen in a real free market because... Um, they wouldn't get repeat customers. People would find out about it. It would ruin their reputation, and they wouldn't be able to sell products anymore. And that's a law of economics. So that's what would happen. But that's not, you know. And that was the other thing. Well, they always blame it on. Okay, well, you know, it's it's because we don't have a free market. That's why this is working. Like, if you watch the light bulb conspiracy, there's a cartel that all got together and decided that light bulbs are going to last far shorter than they can. Because we're all going to make money that way. And they all agreed. Right. Because in the long run, it is better for everybody in the light bulb industry for light bulbs to fail sooner than 100 years. You know? Yeah. Oh, they, yeah. It's, there's it's, there's it's, no state involvement in that. There was, you know, they didn't get together and go say, let's go grab governments and make regulations that make light bulbs last less time. They just all said, we're going to all offer this product and steadily, slowly lower the, the lifetime on them, you know, and right, yeah. there's no state intervention. It was a cartel, you know, it's, and it didn't, the cartel was not caused by the state. It wasn't caused by regulations. It was a group of people saying, well, we'll all make more money if we do this, you know, it's still in their best interest. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've been, um, in a conversation still on the YouTube comments for capitalism epic fail recently with uh, one person who is saying, because you know that video starts off where I say, I just kind of go over how many iPods I've bought in the last right. couple of years before I made it. And they're like, well, wh why didn't you just buy an MP3 player from a different company? Obviously, you don't like Apple. So, so that's the problem. <laughs> and I said, but 
I, it's not the problem. I, I like Apple's MP3 players. I liked the way they were set up. I liked the way they were working when they worked. I just I don't think that any of the other companies' ones were going to last any longer because there, there's not an incentive to necessarily always make the best, longest-lasting product. The incentive is to make a product that seems better in some way, but doesn't. Um, it, it does. It, you know, like we say, you could build an MP3 player that could last for a hundred years, but you don't need to do that in order to create market competition. All you need to do is, you know, make it a little bit thinner, or round the corners a little bit more, or make the screen a tiny bit bigger. What what the real incentive is there is for this a small amount of variation around, you know, not the worst possible product, but the worst possible product that you can get away with and still um, keep your customers, you know? So you, you're not going to make something that's 100 times better than your competitor. You're going to make something that's, you know, 3% better than your competitor so that when they beat that, you can still beat it by a little bit. Or maybe even not beat it by a little bit, but make yours look cooler or something like that. There's there's so many other um, ways that you can make your product appeal to someone, especially when you have a ton of money and you can advertise it and you can, you know, like Consuming Kids, that documentary, you can hook people up to brain scans and figure out which colors are the best to sell certain things or right. like which things make people hungry and all, all that kind of stuff. Like when you have that kind of research going into how to convince people to buy your shit and how to make them associate emotionally with the message you're sending in your advertisements more so than even the product you're doing, you don't necessarily have to make the best product. That's not an economic law. And um, it's it's really hard I, to get anyone to admit that, to, not anyone, to, but to get a free market supporter to admit that point. But... Um, I uh I've done it a few times. I've gotten a few people to just say, "Okay, yeah, that that does make sense." But it's it's more of a problem with again, that not being a free market because the corporations are shielded from liability by the government and all that. And I get that argument and it makes sense that sure, um a lot of what happens now with corporations probably wouldn't happen in a true free market because you can't just make a company that um, you, you would be held liable for what you do rather than there being this fictional entity called a corporation that takes the liability for you. I understand that argument, but it doesn't completely negate that the profit motive can often incentivize negative behaviors. Right. Well, and, um, go ahead. Uh, just yeah, final thing is that like they they really take it as a as a as again axiomatic that what is moral or what is ethical will always make more money will always be the thing that makes profit. Like I've heard Steph say that um, just flat out outright that there is a direct correlation between morality and what makes money between the free market and ethical behavior that's what is promoted because that's what people will pay for but it just it doesn't pan out like that in uh in the real world 
Well, right, and they always say, but it would if if we had no government intervention and all this other crap. Like that's their their silver silver bullet answer to everything, even when it doesn't make any sense. That's why I bring up the light bulb conspiracy because that cartel formed without any government intervention at all. They that and that spits directly in the face of what they're talking about because they're basically suggesting that a system where everybody is um basically where everybody is fueled by their greed and groups of people can get together and be greedy just as much as individuals their their law of economics is that somebody will break it and it'll never work the thing is is that if it's still if, if it's to everybody's mutual advantage within that group it's also part of the nature of man to do that. You know, it's one of the reasons why altruism can work, ironically. You know, but, um, mm. but like, for example, uh, another example of a, a cartel is the oil companies. You know, how much do gas companies really compete on gas prices? I mean, if you go to, if you go to like, a, just drive down the street and look at the, the various gas stations that are parked across the street from each other, you might be looking at, what, one or two cents difference? You know, in, in the gas oh, price, right. yeah. Because and then when the gas prices go up, they all go up. And even though they're saying, "Oh, we have no choice. We're struggling. We got to raise these prices," even you know, and then and then you look at the, the what the profit share, what the the shareholders are being told. Oh no, we're getting we're 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 making more profit than we ever have. You know, oh my God, it's so great. We just raised the price on this commodity that everybody needs. You know, I said needs because our whole world is set yeah. up around it now. So that's all they have to do. They they basically call each other up and you're like, hey, VP, yeah, you know, um, th th this is Texaco. And we've decided, uh, we're, we're thinking, why don't we just raise the price of gas a dollar and just all agree to, to not go, say, more than five cents difference. And then VP goes, well, yeah, it's a great idea. And if we all do it, then everyone will be more willing to pay gas, you know, higher you know prices for gas. And then, like, in Michigan, I know it's worse than it is in some other places, apparently, but... Like, you know, we sometimes pay as much as $4 a gallon, and um, they just slowly condition you, like the, the frog in the, the boiling pot of water, you know, to accept higher and higher gas prices. And then every now and then we'll go, man, do you remember when it was, like, $2? You know, and then and you, you notice it the most when, like, it goes down to, say, three fifty. And you're like, oh yeah, that's some good gas prices at that place. Let, let's stop here. You know, three fifty. <laughs> right, right. You know, and that's that's how these cartels do it. And it's the same way they condition the light bulb consumers to slowly accept, you know, crappier and crappier light bulbs. You know, and that's that's an example of something that can once again happen regardless of what the state does or whether the state exists. Um, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I um. I, I just remember that we, I, I grew up in a, a smaller city, um, Medicine Hat in um, Alberta, and I remember when we first got our Walmart, there was uh, this huge gas war that just kind of blew up out of nowhere, and I couldn't understand why, because if you went to the Walmart in Calgary a few hours away, the gas prices were the same as they were at every other place. But when it came to Medicine Hat, like the gas prices around then were, I think if I remember right, were around dollar a liter, right? Like we Canada, so it's uh, mm -hmm. by the liter rather than the gallon. And um, w when the Walmart came in, it for about two weeks there was this crazy gas war where like one one place went down to sixty cents, and then another one was down to forty five cents, and people were 
calling the radio stations and telling them where the cheapest gas was. And it, it got down to almost like 25 cents a liter for a few days, and people were backing trucks up and filling it up with gas. And then it all just leveled out again and got back to where it was. And it, from then on, it would just kept going like normal. But um, just I, I always wondered like what was behind that because it didn't seem like regular market competition like i like i don't understand why this one walmart gas station would all of a sudden charge so much lower than everyone else for two weeks and then it would go back to normal um i don't really know if well i know it's part that, of the but... walmart corporate strategy to undercut the competition to hopefully put them out of business um it's harder to do that though with a gas station you know because everybody needs gas. right yeah but it's yeah. uh, but you know like they they knowingly go into places and go you know and actively you know target small businesses to try to put them out of business and that's all part of that strategy yeah maybe they thought that if they came in and did that that uh just a few gas stations might not be able to take it even for a short amount of time and would go out of business since they were just entering the town for the first time or something like that i i don't know I um yeah. Well, they I, do it with every other product I, they have too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, they can charge such crazy low prices just because of their the the bulk amount of everything they have. Just like when you are that huge, you can own everything and control everything, so you can um have have basically the lowest prices on everything. And uh it's horrible, but like even like I I don't think I've gone to Walmart any time recently, but I go to other stores like that sometimes when you need things because it's just it's so convenient. There's everything there. Every you know it's like oh I need towels and I need uh, a a toothbrush and I need a glass and I need a pillowcase. So it's just like all, all these like random other things. You're like, I could go to a bunch of small stores and try and find where they are, or I could just go to one place and buy them all at Walmart or Superstore or any store like that. But yeah, it's a, I guess it's a good business model is the point, but um, yeah. Well, that's how like yeah. a big corporation will will also. I mean, it's and this is the other thing that I say that you know when they when they blame it all on the state, I point out that you know if you if you're gonna have big giant mega corporations, or let's say we even just get rid of corporations and get rid of corporate personhood, because you can sometimes get free market types to agree to that. Um, it's if there's gonna be somebody who has a huge concentration of wealth in their hands then they will come into a situation and undercut the competition out of business, even if they take a loss. Um, we already see it in the agricultural you know, situations where um, uh, basically where they'll go like into these places like in third world countries, undercut all the local farmers, eventually put them out of business, and then take their land at pennies on a dollar, you know, because there's these people have lost their land, they've lost their farms, you know, and so what develops out of that then is that well now we can go ahead and raise the prices of food again because you know we've we've killed all the competition so you know who's going to undercut us um and right. that and that's not an effect that they do with the assistance of the state either that's i have more money than you so i can afford to lose more money to put you out of business because it's a long-term investment for me to get rid of my competition 
Right. Yeah. It's like when they talk about barriers to entry that the the state sets up. Though there's so many barriers to entry, and that's why you know young businesses can't get their start. But even the fact that you're competing with a giant multi-billion-dollar corporation is a barrier to entry because they can undercut you. They can buy out. They can buy a store across the street from you and buy and and sell what you're selling for less than you and. Who, who's going to buy from you in that situation? It's just not. It's just not going to happen. Well, that's the other thing that I said. You know, like you know, when he says things like consumers will just refuse to do business with people who do these things, I'm like, that's not even true now. You know, and 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 that once again, nothing to do with the state. People already know what Walmart does. People already know that they employ sweatshop factory, you know, workers. You know, people already know that they undercut, you know, other businesses, and they, they can see the effects on their economy. They don't care. They still go buy stuff from Walmart. You know, that knowledge doesn't change anything, especially if you're in a profit-motivated, selfishness-oriented society. Then they're going to go where the lower prices are. You know, the the best example I gave was when the BP oil spill happened. I remember arguing with an anarcho-capitalist about that, and that's. You know, once again, you're you're dealing with a different animal when you're dealing with an anarcho-capitalist, which Stefan happens to be. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I said, okay, so how do anarcho-capitalists handle the BP oil spill? Well, first of all, um, anybody who was involved in that could take them to court. I'm like, well, wait, you're talking about a stateless society. Where do these courts come from? He's like, oh, well, they're private courts. I'm like, what the hell is a private court? And they go, oh, well, we hire a judge to decide what will happen for us. And I'm like, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me we're going to go hire a judge? You and I. You know, if you're BP, and he's like, yeah. I'm like, okay. So now... Who, who gets to pick the judge, me or you? Because well, I, I feel like that that might influence the outcome in some way. Well, I right. Know. I, no, no, I agree. It's, it's, it's yeah. silly, but I, I keep following them down the rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, so... We go and we go to this judge, and we're assuming that this judge is is going to be he was not going to be in any way corrupt. He's like, well, of course not. You know, he's a private judge. He he does this for a living. He's a mediator, so you know he doesn't want to ruin his reputation by doing things like taking bribes. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, so then let's just assume that that works. I don't I don't really think that would work, but let's just assume that it does. Okay, so now we get a ruling against BP, you know, and um, they're supposed to pay restitution, right? He's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, okay. So absent a state, how do you enforce that? Well, um, like no, no, seriously, how do you enforce that? Well, if they don't go along with it and pay the restitution, then the people will rise up and just choose not to do business with with BP. I'm like, is that really your plan? You know, he's like, yeah. I'm like, you you honestly think that's going to work? That all of the consumers on the planet are just going to stop doing business with BP? because of their corrupt business practices and refusing to pay off a lawsuit. It's like, yeah. I'm like, that's ridiculous because they nobody stopped buying BP gas, you know, or you know, BP gasoline even when we all know what the hell they did. You know, nobody stopped right. buying BP gasoline. They don't care. And all that a company like that would have to do in that society to be sure that it didn't if they could just lower their gas prices by say 20 cents and then everybody would buy their product anyway you know and then eventually right, it would just yeah. pass out of their memory and then they wouldn't care 
And it, and yeah, I um, that, that that's one thing I still like. I still really haven't been able to wrap my head around is the whole DRO uh, dispute resolution or dispute resolution organization free market uh, legal system thing. I uh, haven't been able to dig into that and really get an understanding for how that's supposed to work. But I mean, it <laughs> it just seems so counterintuitive that um it's it's hard to imagine how it could work like the way you just explained it there obviously it sounds ridiculous but i just uh, it, i i i i know that there has to be some way that they think it would work you know i i don't know well just, it's yeah. you know it all works everything works great as long as everyone goes along with the non-aggression principle you know, which I think, right. you know, is, is a viable concept as long as they're in a society that's going to create people that would follow the non-aggression principle. It's like I had that same conversation with a lot of, because like I was a minarchist, meaning very small government when I was a libertarian. Most most libertarians are either minarchists or they're full-on anarcho-capitalists. Um, the ones who are full-on anarcho-capitalists who want no government I asked them, I'm like, why are you even here then? This is a political party. He's like, well, we hope that eventually we can make enough changes through this political party that eventually people will realize they don't need the state. I'm like, okay, I guess that's fair. You know, um, and then they would try to convince me. And one of the people I remember who tried to convince me was Mary Ruart. She was one of the uh, candidates that year. And she's the one who, the, the big scandal on her was that uh, when she was interviewed, somebody said, well, what about things like child pornography? You know, um, is that legal? And she basically said, well, you know, nothing's illegal. You know, it's an anarchist society, you know, and children might make these decisions to be involved in child pornography, and we may not like it, but we can't stop because them. children can consent. Right. Yeah. Because, you know, it, and that's just, it was ridiculous. But if you're in an anarchist society, you can't have little laws like, you know, who's a minor, who's, you know, who's old enough to consent, because such things, they, they don't exist, because it's a stateless society. You might have those kinds of little rules and all that, but, you know, overall, though, you know, that was actually what kind of destroyed her as a candidate. And one of the big things I remember, you know, discussing with the other people in the party, I'm like, if you nominate this lady, you know, Fox News gets word that there's this candidate who thinks that child pornography should be legal or rather just shouldn't be illegal, you know, it, that that's all we would hear yeah. about. We'd be the child pornography party. <laughs> oh, it's that's interesting. It just uh in the paper today actually I saw an article where this guy um who what's his name? Flanagan, something Flanagan and he is a strategist for the current prime minister. Mm-hmm. who is a conservative prime minister in Canada. And I think that in the article, like I'd never heard of this guy before, but they referred to him as one of the founding fathers of Canadian conservatism. And um, he, he said that he doesn't think child pornography should be illegal. He said, hold on here, I have it. Um, uh, he He said that it was a victimless crime <laughs> that uh he said he he said that it it's really a question of liberty and whether we're going to control what people look at in their private lives you know when they're not hurting anybody else and it's like okay if you completely ignore you know the children then i guess they're not hurting anybody else i 
I mean, if, like, I, if you just look at it as, oh, looking at a picture on your computer, you're not hurting anyone. But, I mean, obviously there's more to it than that. It, I just thought it, it was crazy. And now, obviously, the prime minister, everyone is scrambling to distance themselves from this guy. And he's being forced to retire from his seat at this university and all of this. But I just thought that was funny since you brought up child pornography and whether it should be legal. Right. I mean, well, I understand the concept of victimless crimes, and it is an aspect of libertarianism that I still get, but there are but you run into the wall in that it is really freaking obvious that child pornography damages the children that are involved in it. There is a victim. You know, yeah. Period. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, and that's and so but there are other things like, you know, victimless crimes like if you choose to smoke marijuana, not hurting anyone you know victimless crimes if you and your partner decide to have uh sex in a way that you know is unconventional if you're not hurting anyone and it's consenting adults you know then that that's it that that's the end of it you know you don't have a right to tell somebody you know well, you know that there isn't when there is no victim you know between consenting adults you know that's that's another example. Yeah. You know? Oh yeah. It, it's a it's a good idea. Like the whole victimless crime thing. Like libertarianism. Um, just in general. Like if I did have any views before watching Zeitgeist, like I used to watch uh, Penn and Teller all the time. Penn and Teller's mm-hmm. show bullshit, and they're pretty strong libertarian-minded people. And I really enjoyed that show. I don't enjoy it so much anymore. I, I don't really like the way that uh, he goes about making his points and the kinds of arguments he uses all the time. But a lot of the time I do agree with them. And the stuff that I do agree with is that kind of thing that like, hey, let's just let people do what they want if they're not hurting anybody. I, I just don't understand how that applies to child pornography. But um, well, Right. And that's it's definitely a that's why I said that there's a slippery slope on both sides of these issues. And I remember encountering somebody once again at the libertarian convention. I was sitting with a guy named professor George Phillies and he was one of the candidates and we had a really good talk about centrism, um, which is a kind of an underrepresented like point of view because there's libertarian, there's fashion or the, you know, there's status, there's you know, all these different things on that Nolan chart of theirs. And centrism is what happens if you happen to have a lot of policies from both sides. Well, I was talking to George Phillies, and um, this guy walks up and says to George Phillies, he says, you know, what, do you th- what are your thoughts as a candidate on the issue of the fact that I feel that I should not have to pay um, for health insurance for a gay couple because I don't like gays? And I start chuckling. I was like, he's like, what do you think is so funny? And you know, Mr. Phillies looks over at me because at this point we have a healthy respect for each other and he lets me feel that. I said, you know, it always make it's always funny to me when libertarians eat their tails. He's like, what are you talking about? Like, you're chasing your tail. You're, you think that your freedom should extend to the point that you're telling someone else that they can't do something. I'm like, he's like, well, you know, it's my business. It's my money. I'm like, okay, but it's not your bed. It's not your house. It's not your life. It's not your partner. You know, why the hell should you care? You know, what, you know, if you don't agree with having sex with men when you're a man, don't have sex with a man. It's none of your goddamn business what this guy's doing. Why ask? You know, if, if you don't agree with his lifestyle choice, so you're not going to pay him, you know, the, the, the agreed upon 
you know, whatever benefits that you, you know, you agreed to in whatever employment contract, because that's all you can assume when you're dealing with a libertarian. And then George Phillies kind of laughed, and then he's like, you got your answer, you know, because he agreed with me. He's like, the idea that you're even right. asking me that you should have a right to deprive someone else of their rights is silly. But they get to a point it, where... This is really... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, it is a really strange thing, the way that uh, the libertarians have sort of merged with this Christian um, aspect of the right wing, because they they just seem so... like. Pretty much everything you listed during that uh, first little spiel you gave where you were talking about all of the things that were wrong with this Constitution Party candidate Mm -hmm. had to do with religion in some way. Like, you know, the whole anti-gay stances and the religion in schools and all of those things. So it seems like that just throws a huge monkey wrench into the whole freedom like because you listen to Steph Molyneux and people like that they aren't like that like he's an atheist he's not a religious person he's not anti-gay he like he doesn't have any of those traditional kind of religious right stances but they are very prevalent in the right-wing community in general and especially the the libertarian community and it well the funny thing is is that they shouldn't be in the libertarian community but the the two things are kind of merged it's like the constitution party was hoping that they were going to be able to piggyback on the energy of the Ron Paul movement to get more attention to their ideas. And it was pretty clearly an attempt to hijack the, you know, the, the energy that Ron Paul had and then bring it to the Constitution Party because they're one of the smaller third parties. They're kind of like, you know, they always produce interesting candidates. Um, when I said interesting, you know, I don't know if you watched <laughs> any of the, the recent debates we had with third party candidates, but Virgil Good was was on there and it was funny just how not popular he was with the alternative voters. You know Right, yeah. I did I did watch one of the, the debates on democracy now. They kind of intercut it with the other presidential debate that was going on. They would have the third party candidates respond. Right. It was pretty cool. Well right. I mean that well and that was like that was Jill Stein of the Green Party, she was pretty cool, and then Rocky Anderson yeah. was one of my favorites. Um, from the the newly formed Justice Party, I had him on my show. Um, but in any case, um, it's basically the other thing about it that you find, and this is the the other kind of dark side, is that in many cases there are a lot of people attracted to this who are very big on personal freedom, as long as it's theirs. Like um, the the West Virginia chairman of the Libertarian Party in West Virginia. Uh, was a is a total anarchist. Was part of the 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 radical wing is what they called them, the the full on libertarian anarcho capitalists. And you know he was very big on you know no state and you know everybody should have rights and all that. Well, <laughs> I know just because my ex wife spent a lot of time with him that he was in his personal life extremely domineering and violent with the women in his life. You know, so you have this guy who's on one hand talking about, you know, no initiation of force and, you know, and no police and and no this and no that. And then in his real life, you know, he basically dominated and controlled the women in his life. There there are some of these personalities who get attracted to this, this set of, you know, mindset because they're hoping they're going to live in a world without any kind of consequences. You know, they don't want cops showing up at their door to say, stop them from beating up a woman. You know, they don't. That's that's where the authority get. You know, the whole their whole attitude about authority 
really comes up is that they have no problem taking authority on their own, and they don't ever want to admit that. Like, take Ayn Rand's personal life, for example. You know, she was all about, you know, uh, you should never be altruistic. You should never do anything that you're not comfortable with, you know, because someone else wants you to. And then she has an affair with her prodigy in, in the objectivist movement. And even though he didn't really want to have one, and even though he was married, and even though she was married and her husband was not cool with it, but he just let her do it, you know, and then, you know, but she was like, oh, no, this is rational. You know, this is great. This is just like in one of my books, you know, it's a totally <laughs> rational, you know, affair that we're having. And then the real punchline comes in when a couple years down the road, um, her prodigy discovers this young girl that really likes him and decides to have an affair of his own because, you know, he's he's an objectivist. He should just do whatever's right for him, right? Well, Rand didn't well, feel that way. Well, it was rational way. before. Yeah. Right, right. And then Ayn <laughs> right. Rand smacked him in the face in public, like literally a fist <laughs> attacked him and then kicked him out of the objectivist movement, like, you know, shunned him. You know, it, it, because <laughs> she was so upset. How dare he do that? You know, go and have an affair on her when she's right. already married. Wow, that, it's just it's just such a crazy double standard hypocrisy. It's and I mean again, like people love to point it out, but it's true that she took social security in her old age. Like she did not live by the values that she put forth because it's almost it's. I mean, if you're getting old and you don't have money what else are you going to do? I mean, it's just kind of like it's impossible not to. I mean, maybe not impossible, but um, pe people are going to do... They're they're going to take the help that's available, even if it kind of goes against what they're thinking or their, their their philosophy is. Well, right, and that's, you know, there is, there is an argument to be made that I've heard some libertarians make who take government assistance that, well, you know, hey, I paid my taxes into this, you know, it was taken against my will, so why shouldn't I just be right. able to take it back, you know, and I understand where they're coming from. The problem is, is that somebody like her, she was absolutely freaking vicious her entire life with anybody who might ever conceive of taking government assistance, and then she went ahead and did it, because it was, you know, it was beneficial to her at the time. You know, the other dark side of this, which is one of the reasons why I've actually told people, like, when they're concerned about you know, what the elite is up to. And it actually came up, ironically, when I was dealing with all of the, you know, is the Venus Project or the Zeitgeist Movement an NWO front or whatever. And then it occurred to me, I'm like, you know, our ideology is not very compatible with that. We're not into some elite group of people taking control. And, in fact, anybody who spends any time around Peter Joseph or Jacques Fresco is not going to get the idea that that's a good plan. You know, it's – but – on the other hand, these Ayn Rand types, like, you know, you read books like Atlas Shrugged. Well, what's Atlas Shrugged about? Atlas Shrugged is about the elite getting together, sabotaging a large portion of the infrastructure of the planet, causing massive death and devastation so that they can retire away to their little gulch, you know, until right. mankind learns their lesson and doesn't ever dare talk about taxing or, you know, taxing people or you know, labor unions or anything like that. You know, it's like the heroes are basically the elite from the Alex Jones Endgame film, you know, and that's... Right, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. <laughs> right, and that's why I was like, what's the deal here? And then you you take the 
you couple that with like you know, if you want conspiracy theory, just take a close look at you know who Ayn Rand's personal circle were. Well, one of them just happened to be Alan Greenspan, chairman of the Federal Reserve. You know, I'm like, right. why aren't you people barking up that door? You know, I can't believe that you could be a Randroid and then at the same time be anti-Fed. Explain to me how those two things work out, because one of them is one of the most infamous chairmen of the Federal Reserve that we've had in recent memory, and the other one is Ayn Rand. You know, and they're, they're bosom buddies. Like, you know, he was literally, not, he wasn't just a follower, he was part of her circle of friends. You know, um... Right. Well, I guess you could just say that. Well, he's not. He's not actually following the philosophy, or he's not doing it justice to you know your interpretation of it, or whatever. Well, but, um, it's yeah. Well, the other thing that I would point out, as far as the other dark side of this, is that there seems to be all these weird little exceptions when it comes to the non-aggression principle. And for one of them, for example, is Ayn Rand talking to West to a graduating class of West Point about how it was okay for the United States to slaughter Native Americans in the name of capitalism and developing the land. She didn't use those exact words. I could read the quote to you, but she literally said that, well, you know, those Native Americans, you know, anarcho-primitivists, you know, they didn't have any concept of land ownership, so, you know, should we have just let them keep the land? No, you know, like, we have a right to take over this country. As soon as she said that, she was endorsing, you know, war and genocide, you know, yeah, genocide, yeah. In the name of taking people's stuff, which is a violation of the non-aggression principle. And then she had the same attitude about um, Arabs. She said the same thing about them. It's okay to go take their stuff. And I'm like, that's interesting. You know, that, that kind of describes the foreign policy of the United States for the last, like, you know, <laughs> a couple hundred years. You know, the, the, the final right, solution right. against the Native Americans, and then now we're invading all these Arab countries. Because the whole... Just, uh, T taking people's stuff thing is um, something that that was one of the biggest things that like I I could not understand when argue like when um, debating with free market people was that it always got down to well like okay you talk about how you want to produce abundance and how you're going to give that away to people and it's always okay well who are you taking it from to do that and you're like oh no 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 we're not taking it from anyone it's kind of commonly owned or it, it, you know, collectively owned. It's 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 everybody's. There there is no taking it from someone. There, we're not taking anything from someone. We want to give to people. Like I could never quite get where they were coming from with that. But it's just this kind of as, as soon as you start talking about collectivism or socialism, immediately they start thinking of taxes and of governments taking from you to redistribute the wealth. Right. So. It, it's really difficult to try and explain to some of these people that you aren't for their being, you, you are, uh, you're not in favor of there being any large governing body that can just take things from people at will and redistribute them. You're not, you're not for force. That, that, that's the other thing that always would come up. It's like, well, how, how are you going to force us? How are you going to force me to join your system? Because I, I, I won't do it. I'm going to have my house with my gun, and um, you're going to have to kill me before you can force me to join your thing. It's like, well, no, nobody wants to force you to do anything. But the, it's almost as if the idea of uh collectivism and the idea of sharing things and working together has to be 
completely and intimately tied with force in their minds. Like they, they almost cannot fathom a voluntary system where people decide to work together collectively or decide to collectively own the means of production. You know, like like most socialist or um, zeitgeist movement type people aren't going to say that you can't have, you know, your own personal computer or your own clothes or things like that. Like that kind of property, if you want to call it property, it's it's n nobody's arguing against that. They're arguing against owning factories, are arguing against owning the means of production, which is, a, you know, a completely different thing when you're arguing when you're owning something that is the the bottleneck to something that everyone needs if you're owning the water processing plant then everyone has to go through you to get water that get that gives you authority over the other people it gives you power and control over the other people because you control the water you control something that they need so um but yeah, basically, I just I, I was always fascinated with how immediately it went to force. Like, how are you going to force me to join you? How are you going to take my stuff? How are you going to force and take my stuff away from me? You know? Well, they, well, they, well, yeah. It's actually one of my favorite parts of your, you know, uh, zeitgeist movement exposed. You know, plotting to take people's stuff away. Yeah, yeah. Take their <laughs> land and kill them. That I quoted right, that right. for like months afterwards because it was so hilarious, <laughs> you know. Um, but it's the the basis of that is that they usually point towards history and they say, well, you know, anybody who's ever suggested sharing, um, you know, well, they were all Stalinists or Maoists or whatever. And the things that I pointed out recently, and mind you, a lot of this comes from me actually bothering to talk to real socialists and real communists. Um, and I'm still not a communist. I'm still not a socialist, but I have friends who are, like Patty Jo Shannon from Capitalism and Other Kids Stuff. Um, really mm -hmm. good video, and I had him on V Radio. And you know, I've met uh, Brian, Socialist Party candidate 2008. Brian Moore was on my show a couple of times. He was the the candidate from um, you know from the, the American Socialist Party. And you know, the funny thing is, is that um, you know. Uh, Patty was more of a Patty Jo Shannon was more of a like an anarcho socialist, um, and Brian Moore was a like more of a, a you know there was still a state in his view of what socialism was, but it was run by the proletariat. He made a very excellent point to me was that you know when people point at the Soviet Union, you know or the National Socialist Party in Germany or whatever, they're not talking about real Marxism. They're not talking about real communism or real socialism because if first of all there was not a dictator dictatorship the proletariat meaning rule by the people then it has never at any point been that you know they're talking about fascist countries you know that called themselves right. communist or socialist they, i i said the same thing to stefan because stefan molyneux in his one of his videos to to peter like gave all these examples of you know different high death tolls where you know central planning or communism was tried and this is what happened i'm like Okay, well, I guarantee you that the majority did not get together and radically vote for the right to shoot everybody. You know, that's not what happened. Small groups of people take control of those groups, you know, just like they do in any other ism, you know, including capitalism, um, and then bend them to their will. You know, if you, if you study anything about, you know, the basic understandings of socialism and communism, somebody like Stalin should not even exist if you're dealing with a real socialist system. Um, 
the the nomenclature or the nomen I, I always say that word wrong the nomenclature or whatever the which were essentially the 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 small elite that ran the Soviet Union were the fact that they existed means that you're not dealing with communists and that's why um you know especially when you're talking to an anarcho communist or an anarcho syndicalist or you know any of these um anarchist schools that still follow the idea of sharing you know it's also important that they and they point this out that a lot of people have very flawed understandings of what communism and socialism are because in the United States during the Cold War there was a huge propaganda campaign to get people to think that anybody who uses the word share is coming to your <laughs> your house with a gun to take your stuff you know right and that was never true um and don't get me wrong the Soviet Union also did all kinds of anti-capitalist propaganda you know in their own country but you know, that's how these big countries do things. And the thing, this is another thing that I pointed out recently, you know, and I was said to Stefan because he pointed out, you know, okay, well, there's these, you know, these gulags and these death camps and they round people up and they shoot them to make it easier for, for them to calculate how much everybody needs and all this other crap. And I said, okay, well, in the capitalist system, you don't need gulags. It's actually even more efficient. You don't, you don't need death camps. You just let the people who don't happen to find the way to, be useful to the capitalist system, to the 1% within the capitalist system, you just let them starve to death. You don't have to shoot them. It's, right. it's even more, you know, financially uh, efficient because you don't have to kill them. They'll, they'll die, you know. Well, I mean, that, and that's the, the, the main argument against uh, capitalism or voluntarism, as, you know, that sometimes like to refer to it, even being, you know, voluntary at its base is like, how, how voluntary is it if your options are, work or die and that's you know where people's uh ideas of wage slavery come from and um you know they say oh you can pick a different job but that's not always true that sometimes there aren't jobs available or nothing in your skill set and okay well then go to school and get new skills well you can't if you don't have any money right it's it, it, it money if money is the barrier to entry to doing anything in your society to learning anything to growing to doing anything then if you can't if you don't have any money then you can't get ahead you can't um grow um yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> no i mean it's it's no you're right and that's i remember saying that you know the idea that there's no coercion in a free market system because you know you can just go work somewhere else or whatever you know you're right I'm dealing with that right now. I'm not working a job that I want. I'm working the one I could find, and there really was nothing else. And as the economy tanks and as uh, automation continues to eliminate jobs, which I might add recently, they, they've, made at, they've made advances in technology now that uh, building a robot now costs um, like less than $20,000 a year to maintain. Well, 20000 is what low-paid wage workers were getting. You know, twenty thousand a year if they're lucky, right? And technology is quickly getting cheaper than sweatshop labor. When that happens, they won't have any use for a labor force at all, you know. And they're like, "Oh, well, just start your own business." I'm like, "How do you start your own business without capital?" You know, uh, you know. Especially this is the other funny thing that's kind of a hole in their system, is that they they always brag about all the innovations, you know, that that the scientific or technological innovations that are made because of the capitalist system and all the big things that we built, all the infrastructure and all that we built through capitalism. I'm like, yeah, but it was all done with fractional reserve banking. You know, you don't forget that all of those businesses that got started all got loans in the fractional reserve system to start. You know, 
If you're right. and, and since they all want to have a limited currency, whether it's based on gold or whatever, fractional reserve lending would go away. You, there's not going to be enough money in the economy to do anything on the scale that they're talking about. You know, if there's not going to be enough money in the economy for people to borrow to start businesses, and if you don't have that money, you don't have anything. That's the bottom line, and that was another turning point for me when I was I was in an argument in the Ron Paul radio chat room. And I asked them, well, what happens to the people who can't find ways to be useful to the market? You know, one of them finally spit out, well, the strong will survive and the weak will perish. Like, okay, well, that, no thanks. That That's not good enough for me, you know. Right. Well, I, the, the answer I usually hear uh, from them about that is charity, that they should ask for charity and that if people aren't being taxed, they will give more to charity and – that I mean, that's just like the the Milton Friedman bit that's in Zeitgeist Moving Forward. It's they're talking about the electric company that shut off the power to um, someone and they died. Right. And Milton Friedman goes on and says, you know, well, the the people in their community should have given charity to this person. So um, that, it, that's always the answer, but that's not. It's not. I mean, how the hell I are you going to how view, the hell are you going to read Ayn Rand's books? that literally demonize people who are not financially well off and then come away from that saying, oh, we'll create a society where charity works. You know? Right, right. Because... Yeah, well, she makes it like she, she makes it seem like as if accepting charity is just like the lowest of any like vices that could possibly exist. It's just... How, right. The, how is that... How are people weaned on that philosophy going to create a charitable world. That's actually the funniest thing about this recent scandal with Stefan whining that he got a $2 donation. And I pointed this out to him. Right, I said, right. you realize that you know, what, during his radio rant about it, he's like, well, my anarcho-capitalist you know, listeners should be the most generous donators ever, you know, is one of the things he said in that radio broadcast. You know, I, I don't understand why I'm not getting enough donations. I'm like, because Stefan publicly funding things is only going to happen when it's convenient to somebody, you know, to donate, you know, that it's, you, you essentially have just complained that your community, the people that are supposed to be able to replace charities and welfare and all that through the kindness of their own hearts are not even willing to pay for your radio show that they're all listening to. You, do you think they're going right. to donate to, you know, other people's health care when needed? Do you think they're going to, you know, prevent people's evictions? Do you, do, you see, do you see that actually coming out of it if they're not even willing to pay for your radio show? You know, um, if yeah, the, the other interesting point about that that my friend uh, Chet on Facebook made was that, you know, free market people always talk about subjective valuation and that things are only worth what people are willing to pay for them. So if if someone's subjective valuation of Steph's radio show was that they wanted to give him two dollars, then that that's valid. That's that's the value of it in the free market. That if that's what they're willing to pay, then that's what it's worth. So I don't, I don't know what his problem is with it. Well, right, and that's the funny thing. Like you know, in my own experiences with donations. I followed all of those rules. Like when donations dropped off for a while at V Radio, I went and did research and I talked to the people who have donated in the past. And I was like, is there anything I can do to improve the product? Like I kept it positive. I'm like, is there anything that I could do to make it better? And they're like, no, no, I, I love it. You know, there's nothing wrong with this show. I'm just, I'm on hard times right now, so I just can't afford it. I'm like, no, that's totally fair. I was just trying to evaluate what the problem was. And then the, it just turned out the problem was just that, that, you know, at that time, 
the people who generally donated were all broke. You know, I'm like, I can't ask them to donate at that point. You know, and that's yeah. To me, that was like, okay, well, that's that's totally cool. I'll just have to figure out something else, and that's that's what I did. You know, um, and it was ironic actually to me. You know, his answer instead was to get on the air and shit on people who donated small amounts to him, and the guy who donated the two dollars finally sent him a letter and said, "Look, you know, jackass, I'm you know struggling to get by because I live in this status economy that you're always talking about, and two dollars is all I could spare. Next time I won't send anything." You know, I'm like, "Well, good job, Stefan. You definitely galvanized these people into being willing to donate." You know, like, why would you do that? You know, it just. But he was basically complaining that the the same group of people that he claims are going to you know, voluntarily pay for, you know, you know, through charity for other people's misfortune are also going to be, you know, they're, they're somehow going to donate to him. And it didn't work out that way. And that's. And like, well, what he said was that he was just expressing his emotions that he like, cause what he wrote was like, I, like, I think it was a copy and paste of the $2 thing yep. with a frowny face. And then uh, he said, well, I, I was just expressing how that made me feel. I wasn't saying necessarily that they did something wrong or that it's bad. It, that was just my emotional reaction to the situation. But if that's the case, then he has to understand how people are going to take that. Like, you just write that with a frowny face and you don't explain what you mean. It, like, if he had written out a whole thing that said, you know, I know some people are on hard times and they can't afford it, but just when I see a donation that's that small, kind of makes me sad because of how much work I put into this and all that. Like, that would have been fine. But the, the just the way he went about it, obviously, <laughs> I mean, you can tell by the reaction he got, was not um, something that endeared him to anyone we can say that well right and don't forget though that in that original post he also said not that i want to sound or you know not that i want to sound ungrateful but dot 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 right yes okay so you are ungrateful you know all right <laughs> fine i'll go spend well, my that's just, admit, admi that's just admitting flat out that what he's about to say does sound ungrateful you know like you don't say that before saying something that doesn't sound ungrateful like not to sound ungrateful, but I really loved that donation and it was awesome, you know. So, if, if, if anytime someone says anything like that, like oh well, not to sound like a jerk, but this and this and this, it's because you're going to say something that is jerky. That's that's why you couch things like that with statements. Well, right, and that's I, I think that um, it, it's important to note that you know people since then obviously they're really wrapped up in what he does and. You know, and, and his ideas about the market, and it, when it's demonstrated to be, you know, to have problems or whatever, you know, they get really sore. That's the other thing I noticed. It was, it's not to say that you know there aren't you don't get it from the left because sometimes you do, but libertarians are really freaking emotionally attached to their point of view, and they get really really upset with you if you challenge that. Um, and they become aggressive. You know, it's 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 an aggressive culture. Like I said earlier about how mean they are to each other. So anyway. Yeah. Um. I, I've I've. Yeah, I think that's kind of a problem. Like yeah, I know you just said it, but with any community, I just know. Like sometimes I'm on Facebook and I see some of the people who are defending zeitgeist. Uh, ideas to people and I'm just like oh no 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 please stop just yeah <laughs> <laughs> don't <laughs> like let let someone else do it <laughs> but, right um right. yeah 
It's no, not to say that we don't um, do it because some of us do, you know. And it, it's like a car wreck yeah. when it happens. You're like, stop. Oh, sure. And I mean, I've had my moments too where I just like look back and I'm like, okay, I was being kind of a dick in that conversation. And like, as soon as you get angry, like, like I, I've noticed this for me, as soon as I get angry when I'm in a conversation, like the, the quality of um, my communication skills drops by like fifty, sixty percent. I've I've kind of now tried my best to notice that. Notice when I've when something someone wrote made me angry and to just wait. Like wait five minutes, wait ten minutes before you respond so that you can kind of let that initial uh gut clenching moment pass and you can just like think about it for a few seconds and you don't respond so much to the insults or to this or that. So I, I I don't know. That's just um, I, I've been trying to um, work on my text debating skills. Well, especially that's you know like we were talking a little bit earlier about you know logical fallacies. Some of these things are done with the intent of getting an emotional state of mind out of the person you're debating with. Especially if you realize they're smarter than you. If I can get that guy emotional, then he's going to be off his game. You know, and right. just yeah. like you would in a fight if I'm going to taunt you or whatever. Um, and it's also to kind of send a message to the audience. This guy's not as smart as you think he is, you know. Um, yeah, well, that's like a trolling tactic that you uh, you, you often talk about, like, because for the, for the uh, documentary that we... Yep. Well, mostly that you've been working on. I, I my part would come in later. <laughs> right, I've been. Yeah, I've told people I had to take a break from getting. Although I've been still gathering information, I've just been struggling with how I want to put it together. And like, I have an idea of the basic outline, and then every time I think I'm done, something new happens that I want to include. I think I'm just gonna have to clamp down and just go. All right, I'm done. This is what we're gonna do. If we want to do more, we'll just do better, better installments. But no, you're right. It is a big tactic that you see from trolls. And I think people don't realize that you know, this is something that Aaron and I have been talking about, meaning Aaron Stormcloud's Gathering and I have been talking about, is that it, the major part of freedom is our ability to communicate. And the you know censorship in the physical sense is I just turn off your microphone. Censorship in the psychological sense is I get people you know who um, – are now afraid to talk because they don't want to be the next person to get attacked. Maybe I didn't physically walk up in their face and prevent them from talking, but they're still now showing they're apprehensive and they're, you know, they're afraid of speaking because they don't want to get psychologically terrorized. And people have to acknowledge that that's, right. it's, it's tyranny. That's like, that's the pulling from the playbook of the Nazi party when they were taking over. But Right. Yeah, that, that's a very real tactic, and that the only way to shut people up isn't by physical force. Yeah, yeah, no, that's an important point that some people don't get. But, uh, yeah, I think uh, I think we've been going for a little over an hour and a half here. We can probably wrap it up. Sure. Um, it's been a good talk. Let me, yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it and uh, for doing the the bulk of the talking. I appreciate that as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, you kind of set the tone for that when you're like, I didn't really have any notes, so uh yeah. Right, right. Yeah. I I I I was planning on making notes and I I started to I do have like four or five things written down that we we touched on all of them, but you, usually I have an extensive list of 
things that I want to talk about. But anyway, no, it's mm-hmm. good. It was a really good show, so um, I'm happy. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. And um, all right, everyone. So uh, yeah, if you want to give your uh, website and stuff out again, you can. Do uh, that. You guys can check out my stuff at v hyphen or v minus radio dot org. Um, and uh, there you can find archives of lots of other shows that I've done in the past, literally hundreds of hours of programming. My must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can check out on the Internet, you know, that I think everybody should check out. Um, my blog is linked there, and um, also in the links section you'll find like links to a lot of other good shows, like uh, Root of the Issue, A Storm Cloud's Gathering. Um, you know, I do that. I go on that show as often as I can on Blog Talk Radio. Um, you can check out my YouTube channel. Got a lot of good like interviews with different people from Occupy and stuff like that. And uh, I'm looking forward to the upcoming Z Day. Um, what are you doing for Z Day? We uh, in Vancouver here. We're actually we're not doing a, a live event. We are making a sort of a Z Day video. We uh, recorded a few of the people from the chapter giving short talks and we've recorded some wraparound bits just kind of shot around va- downtown Vancouver and uh Matt from Zeitgeist Vancouver he's the he's the Vancouver coordinator he interviewed Gabor Mate he went to his house and uh shot like a 20 minute interview with him so that's going to be part of the video too and uh, I'm going to edit it all together. I'm supposed to be getting the all the raw footage for that soon. And so on Z-Day, we're going to release that. Rather than, you know, holding an event and asking people to pay 15 bucks to come and watch speakers and do all that, we thought it might be fun to kind of do something different and put out this, uh, this video instead. That's pretty sweet. I'll be going to the, the, the Michigan Zeitgeist chapter, ask me to come speak again and um, I don't know if you watched the video of the last one I did, but, like, it was kind of funny because they were like, man, that was really good, Neil. Holy crap, that was a great speech. And the re- the only reason that was funny to me is, like, I didn't prepare for that at all. I didn't have any notes. I didn't have anything. I just got in front of the mic and started talking. I was really surprised. Like, I didn't think very highly <laughs> of it, but people liked it. So, I guess. Oh, that that's cool, yeah. I um I would be so terrified to do that. I like I I gave a speech at the Z Day event last year. Like we had the main event in Vancouver and I just, you know, I had the whole thing written out beforehand exactly what I was going to say. I couldn't imagine just going on stage and winging it like that. That's well, that's how I got my first experience with public speaking. I was working at the Michigan Renaissance Festival and I worked in the Joust, which is the biggest event, so there's literally hundreds of people watching you and um, the guy who normally talked to the crowd got fired. And so they told me as we're walking out, <laughs> by the way, you're working on the crowd today. It was like, what? You know, like that was my <laughs> trial by fire. It was like, I guess I'll go role play with them. You know, like I just kind of, you know, turned on my acting persona and I ended up being pretty good at it. But, you know, I think you'd actually do fine. It's something that it, it it's kind of like learning to ride your bike or learning to swim. You have to get over the initial apprehension, and then after you do, you know, it's fine. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely an acquired skill. And, I mean, like I've already, um, like this episode aside, I've already noticed that I've become a lot better at um, articulating thoughts and, like, t- speaking for a long period of time without having anything 
specific written down that I'm reading directly from. Even if I have notes, they were more just like a reference to kind of points to bring up. And I have been getting a lot better at doing this sort of thing. And this is really good practice doing these shows. So maybe maybe at some point I, I'll feel ready to do a speech without um, preparing it. Oh, and uh, Stormclouds Gatherings watching the show, he said you did a really good job with your website and the way that it's like live broadcasting while you're doing and you know the video. He said it's turned out really good, and he likes the way you incorporate it into your website. So, cool, cool, awesome. Um, yeah. Oh, sweet. Um, I I like his show too. So, <laughs> thanks. Excellent. Again. All right, man. Thank you, and uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. And I'm going to end the broadcast.